the art industry cannot survive on people who are lukewarm about it. It needs people who are absolutely committed to tell stories, to lift up the mirror against society and tell it in ways that are possibly uncomfortable or questionable or controversial. That's what artists do. Hi, everyone. It's Joe. You're listening to Occupational Hazards, a series of candid conversations with some of the most inspiring people I know as they share their path to finding their calling and all the gritty realities of their jobs. Whether you want to demystify your dream job or are someone like me who enjoys getting a peek into other people's work lives, then this is the podcast for you. Our next guest is a storyteller who seems to have explored every facet of the performing arts, but he's really just getting warmed up. Joaquin Pedro Valdez is a professional actor whose credits include the UK international tour of Cameron McIntosh's award-winning revival of Miss Saigon and the UK international tour of the Tony award-winning revival of Rodgers and Hammerstein's The King and I, where he shared a stage with actors such as Kelly O'Hara and Ken Watanabe. More recently, Joaquin was handpicked for the role of John Safford Fisk in the six-man fringe revival of Glenn Chandler's Fanny and Stella at the Garden Theatre in Vauxhall, the first fully staged musical to play in London after the lockdown. Prior to making the shift to performing full-time, Joaquin went to film school and built a career in Manila as a filmmaker and director of music videos and commercials. His internationally acclaimed short film, Boulogne, garnered praise and prizes at film fests such as Cannes, Sapporo, in Beijing, and won an award from the National Commission for Culture and the Arts in the Philippines. His first feature film, The Gim, also won numerous awards in the Philippines and was also screened for selection in film festivals in North America and Southeast Asia. Joaquin's intellectual curiosity infuses everything he does, and the sky is the limit for his creativity. He's been a host, a recording artist, songwriter, composer, dancer, theater coach, voice actor, soap opera actor, and a member of a boy band. When he's not in front of or behind the camera, Joaquin is also a fitness junkie and an avid baker. His most recent passion project is an investigation of the Filipino accent in the global narrative. As part of his research, he has been conducting accent workshops for actors in the US and the UK on what constitutes the Filipino sound. And now here's Joaquin to tell us all about how he's doing storytelling in this new normal. Hi, Joaquin. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having uh, me. Hi. So before we get started, you know, how are you and or where are you in your pandemic arc? Well, hopefully the tail end. Hopefully it's the denouement of my arc uh-huh. of this uh, of this pandemic. Um, 2020 was rough for everybody. But despite being rough, I think there's always a bright side to look at. It was an opportunity for me to really focus on my craft and In fact, I was one of the very, very few actors in the UK who was blessed enough to have a show 
right before lockdown one and two, there was an opportunity where outdoor theater was allowed. And there was a brand new theater in London, a pub theater, a garden theater in a, in a famous Vauxhall pub. And we did a six-man fringe show called Fanny and Stella. And I was very fortunate to be in that cast. And it had a short run. And right after our run, it went straight back into lockdown too. So I, I'm pretty lucky. And doing a couple of like commercial gigs here and there to keep me going. I have a really, really good agent. So I'm very, very lucky to be with that company and for them to be pushing me throughout a very difficult, arguably the most difficult time in any actor's career here in the UK. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like you kind of made a history. Do you think you could tell us more about Fanny and Stella? Because happy to get into the other plays you've done, but I feel like yeah. those are more famous on a global stage. Can you tell us more <laughs> yeah, about yeah. Fanny and Stella? Well, you know what? Honestly, I had no idea what it was. I've, I had to Google what it was after I got the call from my agent that the director wanted to audition me. So Fanny and Stella is a small musical. It's a six-man musical where everybody plays multiple parts set in the music hall style of old like English music hall. There's a genre wherein these are small companies that play in pubs. So it was quite fitting that after lockdown one, there was an opportunity for outdoor theater, quote unquote, outdoor theater, socially distant with limited capacity to perform. And our director, Stephen Dexter, and our producers, Lamco, were just really, really brave. And they were like, you know what, if nothing's going to happen to theater, we might as well make things happen. So they decided to mount something quick, something hopeful, something cheery. And Fanny and Stella was something that they had just done a year prior. So they said, Fanny and Stella would be perfect because it's comedy. It's something that will bring people together. It will remind them to laugh. People want escapism at that time in, in the pandemic. So they decided to mount it and I auditioned. I got called by the director to audition. And because we weren't allowed to audition in rooms then, because everything was still kind of locked down, uh, we were auditioning in like a little courtyard outside an old church in London, which is really quite cinematic and really memorable. And yeah, I got offered the role of John Safford Fisk. So the, the story of Fanny and Stella is about two cross-dressers. They were very famous cross-dressers in London. And during that time in Victorian England, it was absolutely illegal. Any gay activity or homosexuality, if caught, was actually punishable by law. And Fanny and Stella were very famous cross-dressers, and they, they would put up shows in London theatres. But then after the show would be done, they'd parade down London and central London in their frock, in their dresses. So Scotland Yard had their nose on the couple. And eventually they were indicted for crimes on sexuality or, you know, or, or sodomy, actually. It was the official crime that they were indicted for. But as history would have it, they were eventually acquitted. And the crime of sodomy could not be proven on Fanny and Stella. So a lot of the LGBT community and a lot of the LGBT historians actually refer to Fanny and Stella as one of the biggest and landmark cases wherein a queer couple actually was not criminalized for their being queer. So it's a nice little story, but then the way Stephen Dexter and the production does it, it's in the style of music hall. 
So it's about us players going to pubs, telling the story of Fanny and Stella. There's a lot of tongue-in-cheek into it. There's a lot of homage to pantomime, wherein there's a lot of audience interaction. You got to roll with the punches because you're performing outdoor. So midline in a serious scene, an ambulance siren would be whizzing by. You're battling the elements. There was a day where the rain was just pissing down in London, as London would have rain, right? It was just pissing down and we could not do our dancing and our blocking. So what we did was like a little sit-down concert version of the show, which was really nice because as actors, you kind of need to be on your toes, especially in a show like that and especially in a scenario like this. But I think what really got to us was how well it was received and how, at least here in London, people were just so hungry for live theater and entertainment. And that's what I love about London. There's this deep respect and love for theater, not just the entertainment factor of it, but just the cultural and the identity aspect of how theater is so ingrained in who Londoners are. And it was bittersweet in the sense that we felt like we were making history, but then it also reminded us of how all of these gorgeous ancient theaters that have so much history are empty at the moment and how we don't know when we can actually sit in the theater again with a stranger and not worry about social distancing. Uh, yeah, we might be a Jeopardy question later on. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Because I was wondering, like, when it first opened, how was the mood in the audience? Because you said there's a lot of audience interaction, but I'm sure the audience was also happy to be there. But did you sense any apprehension? Yeah, so rehearsals were kind of weird for us because we needed to block and choreograph the whole thing with our amazing choreographer, Nick Winston, needed to think about the whole thing, wherein we don't touch each other because we're not allowed to touch each other. At that time, there were rules and guidelines by Public Health England where we could not share props, we could not touch each other, we could not have intimate scenes, which was hard because in this particular show, there were a lot of like serious intimate scenes. So we needed to think outside of the box and how to give the same impact without the usual tropes of actually being able to touch each other. That was one. But then I think what was really nervous collectively for the company was the first day wherein we had an audience of 50 socially distant members and they were all wearing masks because they had to wear masks to watch the show. And for a comedy like this, and they were so close, like they were literally an arm's length from the actors, right? I'm at least two meters away, but then it felt closer. So you kind of are expecting an immediate interaction, laughter, applause, smiles at least, but then you don't see any of that because their faces are covered with masks. So it was tough, but then we, we worked around it and it was always at the end of the show when, when everybody was actually standing up or just you know screaming through their masks and showing their appreciation that we realized that we had something good. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I was kind of thinking a little bit about this when I was reading up on Fanny and Stella. And in a way, the way you staged the show and the setting is kind of taking us back to the days of the beginnings of theater, you know, in the Greek Absolutely. amphitheaters and the Absolutely. Shakespeare in the open air. <clears throat> what are your thoughts on that? Like, in yeah, the, it, the future it, it, of theater, basically. And that's what actually I really, really love about the culture of theater here in the UK is that one is it's, it's absolutely historic. You would have a band of players, literally, with a box of like hats and props and, and knickknacks, and they would perform anywhere. Like they were not limited by 
the lack of audience watching them or the lack of structure that's containing their show. They would be in a park, they would be under a tree, they would be in an amphitheater, they would be in a pub. And that's the history of theater here. That's how people are so enamored by telling stories. And that's how people are so enamored by watching a story being told to them live. And that's what I love. Like even this whole Fanny and Stella experience, we were six. We took care of our own boxes of props. We were under a pub. Our dressing rooms weren't glamorous. I was literally right beside <laughs> where they kept these kegs of beers. And we had to kind of find our own little corner under the pub because we needed to be socially distant from each other as well. So I think the only like downside of that was that theater, I feel, and I grew up with theater being so affectionate and so intimate and so trusting with your co-actors. But then the pandemic kind of threw us a spanner and we needed to just roll with the punches. So we had that intimacy. We had that very family-like relationship as a company, but then we just couldn't hug each other, which was hard. I'm a hugger, you know? But then just the whole experience of being collectively working towards something. We were putting up our props. We were putting up the set together because it's a pub. So after you're done on Sunday, you need to take the whole thing down because the pub needs to continue its business, right? So we were putting up the sets together. We were, you know, we were, everybody was pitching in way more than what they were contracted to do, which I think was a nice energy. It really threw back to the times where people just wanted to tell a story. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. And speaking of the tradition of theater and the respect and history of theater in the UK. I think one thing that the world was watching during the pandemic, there was an ad that came out. I think a UK government ad with that ballet dancer saying like, oh, maybe you should reskill with a job in cybersecurity. Uh, They they quickly disavowed it, but the damage had been done. You know, there was so much Mm. backlash. So I guess in connection to that, the BBC historians were talking about, Mm. you know, how will history look back on this pandemic and one of the worrying Mm. trends they saw was they said it's the further devaluation of the arts you know even in a place like Mm. the UK where there's such a rich tradition they Mm. said that you know things like music theater heritage preservation which the historians were saying are so crucial to our well-being because absolutely I'm going to use their wording it was um, they said it's part of our collective shared imagination as a society and one of the biggest things that they see is that, you know, it will continue to be defunded over time, you know, Mm. or deprioritized. What can you say about that? Do you have any experiences of that or any insights on that based on the support you've seen within your community? You know what? I can understand why the historians are saying that. And even without the historians saying that, just the lack of support for the arts industry during this time was really like surprising. It surprised me as an immigrant, but it surprised the locals as well, because everybody in England who is so used to having the arts celebrated and being called the global standard or the world leader when it came to drama and theater, were surprised at the lack of support that they were hearing or getting from the government. And I like observing. I like finding myself in a middle before I really, really choose my advocacy. So I need to know how informed I am about certain issues. I know for a fact that I lost a job. The tour that I was on was cut short because of the pandemic. And the show that I was about to go into 
was canceled because of the pandemic. And then I booked another show, which was canceled eventually because of lockdown three. So all of these opportunities, which I thought was going to come my way, were just absolutely canceled. And there was no guidance. I think there was a lot of flip-flopping in, in so far as what the theater companies would do. And you got to understand, like across England, there's so many historic theaters that are hundreds of years old. And in some areas that are not as central or as busy as London, the pride and glory of some of these provinces or cities or boroughs is the theater. And there would always be at any given time, there would always be some sort of performance, whether it's a pantomime or a touring company or something for the children or the families. There's always something. In fact, going to the theater is still a thing. Like it's a celebration. It's an event for a family. And every year the Christmas panto is a big thing for families. Because even if you're not a theater goer, a highbrow, upturned nose theater goer, you would go to your local theater for the pantomime every Christmas season. And the kids would love the costumes and the magic of it. And the adults would love all of the innuendos and the adult jokes that are hidden in fairy tales like Cinderella or Aladdin or whatnot. So it's a thing, it's a tradition. But then because of the pandemic, all of that was scrapped. And all of these theaters that are run by communities or the local councils or the boroughs had no money. So there was a real threat that all of this history was going to be erased just because there was absolutely no business for one year. And that was surprising for me to not hear any response or any concrete action from the government insofar as how the arts are supposed to survive. You have the National Theater, you have the Royal Shakespeare Company, you have the Old Globe. These are institutions, but then they weren't even getting support. The Arts Council had their hands tied behind them. So it was quite scary, but I will always go with the hopeful side. It was also really riveting and exciting for me to see how the art community the actors, the directors, the producers were not taking no for an answer. Whether they be out protesting or whether they're going to stream all of their previous productions, the National Theater has a lovely campaign for that, National Theater at Home, where you can watch all of their amazing productions um, in the past that are gorgeously documented. Um, so many small fringe theaters were not taking no for an answer. They were putting up and writing new plays specifically for the Zoom experience. Content just never stopped. And that was really exciting for me. Fanny and Stella is another proof of that. Like they were not taking no for an answer. The artists were coming together and saying, if the government's not going to support us, we got to maintain the identity and the great culture of theater of the country, of the United Kingdom ourselves. So they took it upon themselves to really rally each other and to create new work. So the historians might say that there's going to be a further defunding in the arts. That's probably true. But I think what's also true, and history will look back on it, that the artists and the theater makers and the creators will not take no for an answer. So they're not going to let it be forgotten. Because I think in any society, art is what reflects it. Art is what maintains it. And I think any society that denies that is a very scary and a very sad society. Yeah, I once heard a famous director say that a country with no local cinema, and in this case, you could mm -hmm. say also a country with no local theater tradition, is like a house with no mirrors. Absolutely. Yeah, so that stuck with me. 
you're also a filmmaker, no? And yes. one of the things I've been seeing during this pandemic, the creative industry, I'm sure you've been watching it unfold also, has been finding creative ways to solve the issue of people not being able to appear in the same room. Um, I've been watching like Drew Barrymore's uh, you know, talk show where she actually films guests. The final product makes it look like the guests are in the same studio with her and socially yeah. distanced chairs, but they're actually filming. I think they're filming some guests in LA and then beaming them in to the New York studio against a green screen. Oh, that's amazing. So it's, yeah. So I was wondering, are there any advances on the technology front, uh, both kind of melding film and the live action performance? Absolutely. There, there are some amazing, like, and they're about to come out now. Um, like I said, the theater industry is not taking no for an answer. So some theaters like The Curve in Leicester, it's a gorgeous theater in Leicester, and they're known to be producing amazing stuff every year. Whether it's a touring company or the in-house company of The Curve is producing brand new revivals of The Color Purple or whatnot. They did a gorgeous revival or streamed performance of Sunset Boulevard, of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Sunset Boulevard. And what they did was they didn't hide the fact that it was shot in an empty theater. And it works well because the story is about an aging actress who can't accept the fact that she's being forgotten. So it was like a little meta experience happening there. But then what they did technically was the orchestra was situated right in the middle of the theater. And then the whole theater, that whole empty theater was used as the backdrop of the story. So they filmed, they rehearsed, they bubbled, the orchestra and the actors were bubbled for a month, I think. And they rehearsed all of the show with the intention of it being filmed. So the dressing rooms were part of the set, the hallways, the wings, the crossovers were part of the backdrop of each scene or whatnot. So it was actually really, really cool. And they intended for an audience to watch it just on their laptops or behind a screen. So it's nice how a theater is kind of rolling with the punches and just adapting to the situation and using technology. Yeah, that's, no, that's amazing. And I can't wait to see more of what will emerge, but I do hope yeah. for you know, your sake and everybody else's that we can also return to a world where we have the traditional theater as well. Because I'm yeah, sure that there's, many, there's nothing yeah. like it. Yeah. Speaking of you know, adaptation or evolution is a really good word to summarize your career. Do you think you could take <laughs> us back? You know, how did Okin go from you know, young child actor on stage to all the different things in between and now back to the stage again? Yeah, well, you know what? Wow, that, that's a journey. Um, definitely. You know me. I started out as a kid who absolutely got bitten by the bug, the theater bug, very, very early. I was a pro. And I, when I say pro, I got my first official paycheck as an actor um, when I was 11 years old, performing in Evita for Repertory Philippines at the Morocco Theater. And from then on, I never looked back. Every single year, I would be doing a professional show with rep, and later on with companies like Trumpets for The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And later on, New Voice Company, Actors, Actors Incorporated. And basically throughout my whole life, I was on stage. And it was just something that I accepted to be my normal. And I would always work school around my show that I was going to do for that year. And, you know... My parents and my mom especially would always say, oh yeah, theater is this hobby. And because we knew we were brought up with the notion that you can't 
build a career in the theater industry in the Philippines, um, which I think is problematic. I wish I didn't grow up thinking that I could not be an actor, but I did. That's just the reality of it. And I guess I was conditioned to think that I needed a quote unquote proper major and a proper job, whatever that means, right? And acting was not a proper job. And I can understand why my boomer parents would think so. So I grew up that way, right? And I went into architecture in the University of the Philippines. Well, I was still kind of doing theater in high school. And I think we did a show together in, the, in, our, in our high school drama club. But yeah, and I did West Side Story with stage effects in Savior School. And then eventually I went to college and college, I took up architecture because I thought I liked history. I liked art. I liked drawing. Um, I like visual arts, but again, I could not be a painter, quote unquote, because that wasn't proper, right? It wasn't a professional job. You were either a doctor, a lawyer, and architecture was a major that nobody questioned me in. If you told people, oh yeah, I'm taking up architecture, they'd kind of shut up, right? But then if you told them, yeah, I'm, I'm majoring in drama, then it opens you to more questions and raised eyebrows and doubts and saying, oh, really? What job are you going to get after that, right? So... I just bit the bullet and said, okay, I'm going to take up architecture. And four years in, I kid you not, four years in, it was quite miserable for me. I made great friends, but then I just realized that I was not going to become an architect. I was just too much of an artist, I think. And I went and shifted to the Film Institute in the same university, and I fell in love with it. Every single thing I fell in love with from black and white photography to film theory to watching all of these amazing stories and learning from all of these masters that told their stories through moving images. And I realized that a lot of my background as a theater actor helped me become the film director that I eventually became. And after that, again, because film as an industry is quite wanting as well in the Philippines, there's lots of amazing independently produced films, but then at least in the time that I finished film school, you kind of only had a secure job if you were with one or the other film studio or film network, right? And that was limiting. So I went to the more comfortable and more secure money-making career of any filmmaker, and I went to advertising. So for nine years, I was directing commercials. I was directing beauty products and food commercials, pizza commercials, soap commercials, anything commercials, shooting amazing and gorgeous, beautiful models and working with some of the best gear in the industry, both here and abroad. The amount of money that would go into producing a 30-second commercial is insane. And I worked with some creatives from different multinational ad agencies and clients. And that was my career for nine years. Still. I was still wanting something more artistic. And sometimes the advertising world would burn you out. And I think that's a fact. I think anyone would admit that. It can burn you out. It's really tough. So once in a while, just to regain my soul, I would go back to the theater. And I was fortunate enough to have established really good relationships with a lot of the theater companies in Manila throughout my career as a theater actor. So that when I would be available, because a theater show in Manila would eat up two months of your life, at least. One month of rehearsals and a whole month of the run. And in advertising, if you're out of sight, you're absolutely out of mind. So I would have to be able to 
go for at least two months without any income, without any normal income from my advertising career, just so that I can retain my soul, my artistic soul. And I would do that. So I would go back to the theater once in every like three or four years doing Into the Woods with New Voice Company. Uh, I was a director then already. I did last five years with Nine Works. I was a director then already. I did Spring Awakening with Atlantis. I was a director then already. So my, my hiatus from theater would be like three to five years. Then I'd do a show. Then another three to five years, then I'd do a show. Until it came to 2016, where I just got burnt out. And I said, I don't want theater to be something that I need to do on the side. I want it to be full-time. And I spoke to my wife about it and I prayed about it. And I realized that the only way I can make a career out of being a theater maker, whether it be an actor, a writer, a dramaturg, or a director, would be to study abroad and flourish in a career abroad that actually has the environment and the culture to support theater makers. And that's where I landed on the United Kingdom as a choice. So I applied to various different schools here in the United Kingdom, drama schools, and I got accepted. I was very fortunate. I got accepted in 2017. So I was preparing and finding the funds to support this new career shift, which is going to be very, very expensive because it's at least two years of master's before I can even start making myself a name in the industry. But end of 2017, in the same year that I got accepted to a drama school that I chose, end of 2017, I got an email from Cameron McIntosh asking me to audition for the, United, the UK and international tour of Miss Saigon. And I was like, I told my wife, should I go for it? I mean, I already have a school that I'm going to, so should I do this? And she was like, well, you're going to go to school to get a job like that. So I might as well try. So I did that. And I sent the tape. I was in Manila. I sent the tape and things fell into place. I got accepted into the company of the 2018 to 2019 tour of the United Kingdom. And we took that as a sign from God that that was the right decision to make. So we flew, spent a year in the United Kingdom, toured, amazing tour with Miss Saigon, learned a lot. It was a trial by fire thing. And then Year after that, I booked The King and I for 2019 to 2020, toured again, United Kingdom, Japan, worked with Kelly O'Hara, Ken Watanabe, Oseliana, amazing talent, Annalene Beachy, and then pandemic stopped. And that's where we are now. So that's my, <laughs> that's my long and short of it. Wow. It's like the dots connecting in hindsight when you think about it. No? Oh my God. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'm sure each of those experiences kind of helped prepare you for what you did now. Maybe do you think you could talk about how your work as a director and then your brief stint in a boy band. <laughs> how did that help you in terms of the, <laughs> oh, the work? Oh, I skipped that through that, yeah. Now? Yeah, because I, I was curious, like that plus training also, like how did you bring yeah. yourself up to speed? Because you're a bit like the, I guess the Australian football team for the World Cup where I think they have day jobs, like they're accountants, you know, architects. Right, right. And then they, right. they train and they compete alongside teams that have that as their main gig. So yeah. how, how did you bring yourself up to speed and then also how did your previous experiences help you yeah you know coming to miss saigon and being able to work with such amazing talent from all over the world like it was literally a very international cast for the company on stage and the company off stage as well i was very insecure coming in thinking that i lacked training because 
all of these young'uns, and I was one of the older ones in the cast, but I didn't look like one of the older ones in the cast. And a lot of our colleagues would talk about where they trained and they took, you know, three years of musical theater training, three years in this drama school, two years in this, whatever, um, uh, London School of Musical Theater. So they all kind of are dropping where they trained three years at a time or two years at a time. And I was getting quite insecure because I didn't train. I didn't go to an official London School of Musical Theater or RADA or Lambda. I didn't go into any of that. My training was my years. And I look back at how many years exactly I was on stage. And it's almost 27 years that I've been on stage total. And my training was also my life experience as a filmmaker, as a recording artist with a boy band. And I'm thinking all of those experiences actually, like what you said, put the dots together to make me the product that I am now. And I might not have been through the quote unquote traditional school that a lot of the actors out here go through. But I think that makes my talent a little bit more unique as well in so far that it had come from a really like long haul experience of struggle as well. Because you needed to work around your day job or your education to be a professional at the level that I am in the Philippines. So it was quite a nice realization. You come in a brand new, very white and very Western environment, automatically defaulting to this colonized victim. You know, I'm just from the third world. I don't have this kind of training. But if you really put apples to apples together, a lot of my experience actually makes me quite competitive as an actor and as a product out here. So I'm still learning to embrace that. But then, yeah, someone actually pointed it out that it's your years of experience, your wealth of experience, not just on stage, but as a recording artist with the boy band, with Star Records and with Viva Records, writing music, working with the top professionals in the Philippines, and eventually directing films and knowing that side of the industry. So now in the UK, especially during the pandemic, I'm being put up for more stuff and not just theater stuff, film stuff and TV stuff and recording stuff, which is great. Because now I can really flex all of these muscles that I've been working on for the past 27 years. Yeah, you're probably a lot more versatile and bankable than you thought you were. You know, I was reading about how some theater actors had a challenge transitioning to film because they had to make their movements a bit mm. you know, less, less right. large because they're very used to. I think one example was Paolo Montalban, Prince Charming, yeah. Cinderella, um, Brandy Cinderella. Right. And he was a theater actor. But when he had to come out in the TV production of Cinderella, they told him to kind of sing more like <laughs> a pop star so that he could match right. Andy, that they, they told her to sing more like an opera singer. You know, like, yeah, it's just having an understanding of the nuances and how maybe acting and performance is for different media and different formats. It's probably something you know because you've come out in, you know, radio, TV, films, and you've been mm. behind the camera too. So I look forward to seeing the projects you'll get cast in in the future. Yeah, I'm very excited. Sure. I'm very excited. And I think, I hope and I pray that once all of this is over and things open up, I can only hope that I'm ready, like I'm match fit for when things do open up, that I've utilized this lockdown well to 
stay on top of my game. Yeah. What would you say is the fav- your favorite part about what you do and then maybe the most challenging part that might deter somebody who wasn't really serious about life in the performance? Um, my favorite part of it has always been, and I, I'm very vocal about this, has always been the process. I love rehearsals. I love creating characters. I love discovery. I love working on text. And I love working on it again. And I love finding new things in texts that you probably didn't realize after not visiting it for a week, you know, and constantly just unearthing nuances and truths from characters that have been amazingly written by some of these amazing playwrights, right? So I love that. I absolutely love that. And I used to joke with my wife that it gets quite boring when opening night happens because after opening night, it's like, the show's frozen, everything's locked, and, and that's it. You're, you're hired to deliver that quality every single night, which is another skill altogether and another discipline altogether, which, which is amazing. But my favorite part would be the constant creation and rehearsing and discovering things. Um, that's my favorite part. Not so much the applause. Like, of course, I mean, it's, it's always nice to get appreciated and to get some recognition, which is great. But then that doesn't really turn me on as much as the preparation and the process part. What is scary and what can detract anyone who is considering this is the amount of rejection. And I'll be honest, I had a theory and had an idea of how bad the rejection was in this kind of industry, in this standard out here in the UK. Before coming in, I had an idea of what it was like. I didn't realize how bad it was. and. In Manila, I guess I was extremely privileged and I was extremely lucky to not have to go through this kind of rejection on such a regular basis. Like, I think the amount of rejection that I've experienced just in this past year, add to that going through it while there's a pandemic, a global pandemic, was insane. And it really affects your mental health. And you need to have a good anchor and you need to have a good solid foundation on who you are and why you want to do this, what you've done in the past to remind you of how you got from where you were to where you are right now. And all of these things kind of give you that armor to be able to face the rejection. And it's a tough thing because actors are supposed to be vulnerable. Actors are supposed to be able to really feel on the surface of their skin. And we walk into a room, we put our heart and soul into something. And that's what's expected of us. But then as soon as we leave the room, you're expected to just forget all of that and be detached from it. And it's a tough tango to dance because it's not easy. Because you, you, you're, you're absolutely sensitive. You're absolutely vulnerable. You're absolutely 150% invested in, in a five-minute song or a one minute scene that you're auditioning for. And then you just get rejected like that. So a lot of things that you need to work on is your anchors and your foundations. Cause it takes a lot. It takes a lot. Yeah. So if you were to fill in the blank, I mean, you're alluding to this already, but you know, don't take this job or don't pursue this path. If you blank, you know, if you don't like rejection, but yeah. anything else you would put in that blank. I think if you're not sure acting and theater and film and all of these gorgeous 
professions that are related to art that are otherwise dismissed as unviable or not as important as other professions, if you are not sure that this is what you want to do, don't do it. Because the art industry cannot and will not survive on people who are lukewarm about it. It needs people who are absolutely committed and convicted that they are artists and they are they are the people to tell stories. They are the people to, to lift up the mirror against society and tell it in ways that are possibly uncomfortable or questionable or controversial. That's what artists do. So if you think that it's a hobby, if you think that it's something you can do because you can sing well in the shower, until you're ready to bleed for it, and in this case, starve for it and lose money for it, until you're ready to make that commitment, I don't think it's for you. Like many people, Joaquin has been baking to de-stress during lockdown in London a meditative exercise, if you will. I personally got into guided meditation last year, and it's been really healing and relaxing, especially in these times. If you were interested in trying it, Nick Daez is a meditation teacher, Kundalini yoga instructor, and sound healer who has completed teacher training in New Mexico, Nepal, Bali, and Palawan. Some of his class offerings include Meditation. These classes are a way to navigate your mind and emotions through several techniques to regulate your nervous system and improve your overall sense of wellness. Kundalini Yoga, known as the Yoga of Awareness, this practice uses breathwork, mantras, and movement to get into a heightened state of awareness. Sound baths or sound healing. These sessions utilize Tibetan singing bowls an ancient modality used for centuries for healing and meditation. Expected benefits include increased blood flow and circulation, reduced anxiety, stress, and blood pressure. Nick offers live classes over Zoom, so anyone from around the world can join. If you happen to be based in Surf Town, La Union, Philippines, you can attend his classes in person. You can reach out to him via at Nick Daez on Instagram. That's at Nick, N-I-C-K, that is D-A-E-Z on Instagram. Tell him that you found him through the pod. He'd be happy to tell you more about his classes. Fun fact, Nick also co-founded the award-winning boutique video production company, Sea Biscuit Films. Yep, he was a director who dove into his meditation practice. And now back to Joaquin, a director who dove full-time into his acting practice. You talked a little bit about holding up a mirror to society, and I've, I've heard you talk about this also a little bit in other interviews, but one of the big themes right now, and I think one of the things that people are looking at because of the success of productions such as Bridgerton, where they used yeah. um, not yeah. colorblind, but color conscious casting. They really made mm-hmm. a conscious decision to cast certain roles that would be traditionally white in a you know, period right. drama, to, you know, use actors of color. But, you know, one person was saying that media is global, especially with, you know, the theater maybe 
being filmed and shown all over the world. And actually what yeah. might be in the UK or the US or, you know, Western Europe, what might be called minorities is actually a majority of the world. You know, mm. I think 60% of the world right now is Asian by right. 2050, 25% of the world will be African. And that's not even including South America, if you're going to count like, right. you know, Latino, Latinx population. So, yeah. you know, people were saying it's only right that they should be represented on stage, the world as we see it. Right. But that's not necessarily um, happening. I mean, I think slowly there is this change. Do you mm-hmm. think you could talk a little bit about, I guess, your thoughts on representation in the theater? Because there are some kind of barriers to it or how people right. are overcoming it. Because the one thing that always stayed with me was I, I listened to a talk once by right. an actor who said that getting cast is one part of the equation. But he said right. a lot of it is also he was speaking specifically about the South Asian community or Asian community because he was an right. actor of Indian descent. And right. he, there was an Indian actor who posed a question like all the roles I'm getting on TV, it's all like terrorist number one, you know, bomber <laughs> number two at that time. Yeah. This is like 2000s, right? And yeah. he said, you know, how do I, it's very tough and I want to keep doing this. What Do you have any advice for me? And the more senior actor said, parents also have to encourage these kids to go into these fields. It's not just that we're not getting cast. He said, eventually, South Asian or Asian people of that descent also have to go into the industry and write our own stories because no one's going right. to write them for us. And the parts will not exist if Absolutely. we don't have people willing to write, direct, produce, finance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that was like one perspective. But is that maybe one of the challenges also why there's so few or, or you know, is the rejection also tantamount to maybe there's just fewer roles for people of a certain background? Absolutely. Um, I think I think one of my personal heroes, and not just because he's an amazing talent and an amazing performer and, and writer, but just because of his philosophy of this whole thing is Lin-Manuel Miranda. I think he's the one that really blew open the conversation about representation because he wasn't finding it. So what he did, he's going to write it. And not only is he going to write it, he's going to write it and get known for it and make it the most amazing version of whatever that is that he had in mind so that people would not be able to look away. And that's what he did with Hamilton. Like he did in the Heights, he did bring it on, which probably wasn't as successful as this other work. Um, He did a couple of other work, but then his heart was on Hamilton and he had a very clear intention to tell the story of America with Americans now, as you see it, right? It was so clear. And it was so good that people could not look away. And I think that's what I get inspired by. The talk of representation is still ongoing. And there's so many levels to it. For screen and for film, I can understand why it's taking a little more time than it is for theater to embrace representation. Because ultimately, film and TV are massive businesses. So they cater to an audience. And if you have producers and writers who feel that these are the audiences that are watching their stuff, then it trickles down to how a show is produced, how a show is conceptualized, etc. And it's absolutely right that if we have more people of color, people from the minority that are in positions of power, in, in producer positions, in director positions, in writer positions, then maybe more stories can be written and produced that are not of the colonial white story. My position there is there's lots of stories to tell. There are documentary stories. There are realistic stories that you can tell, but then there are also the Bridgertons that you can tell. 
wherein they're also the marvels that you can tell, wherein in a world of Marvel or in a world like Shonda Land's Bridgerton, roles are not defined by the color of their skin. And that's absolutely amazing. I mean, there's so many stories to explore that are in this in this line of thinking. And I honestly think, I honestly think if they want to look for stories and they want to see how they can, if film and TV wants to see how they can break the mold or think outside of the box, they should go to theater. Because right now, some of the most interesting theater work that I've seen out here are absolutely colored from every single color of the rainbow. And they're the most exciting to watch as well. You know, Shakespeare, wherein genders are bent and races don't matter. You know, it's, those are the most exciting things, even accents. And, you know, we can talk about this later on, but then even accents to deliver Shakespeare in Caribbean English or Pigeon English or South Asian accents, because that's the norm. That's what you hear. You walk down the street in Soho in London, you're not going to hear anyone speaking the Queen's English anymore. No one sounds like people from Downton Abbey or or The Crown like when you're walking in London. Percent of the population, or something. And you're you're in the tube. You're waiting for a tube. You're in the hustle and bustle of central London. You're not going to hear anyone sounding like how you think Londoners should speak, or how the world is meant to think that Londoners should speak. No one. No one sounds like that. I can argue that my accent now, and it's probably changed from the, the time we started this podcast, is a Londoner accent. You know what I mean? Like that's how diverse, how diverse reality is right now. And there's so many stories to tell in that grain. And there are historical stories to tell. And if you want to put up a historical film, put up a historical story in the historical way and in traditional way, then fine. If the historical figure was white, then cast a white guy. And there are many white actors who are amazing. But for example, The Tempest uh, and making a cinematic otherworldly dystopian version of it for Netflix, why limit yourself to just that, to white actors, when you have amazing actors of every color that will actually probably tell your story a little better, just to show the fantasy of it and to make a statement. And that's what I love about like Bridgerton. To be honest, it's not exactly a show that I thought I would enjoy. Because it's really like racy and it's really, it's really like a Fifty Shades of Grey, but with a British accent, right? But I watched it start to finish. I love how exciting the casting was and I love how whimsical the look was. And they were making a very specific statement. They were pushing the boundary and almost telling it like a fantasy because the premise is it's all gossip. It's all stories being told. So it made sense. The execution of the series made sense to what the ethos of the book was or what the show was. So it's exciting. It's exciting to see new ways of telling old stories. And I talk about this a lot. Like I would love to see a Julius Caesar spoken in Shakespeare, in Shakespeare English, but then about Philippine politics. Or I would love to see Puck in Midsummer Night's Dream, but the character of Puck is actually a Filipino nurse who is able to mimic all the accents of Oberon and Titania. Whenever they, he's spoken to, he's able to mimic their accents. But then when he does his own speech as Puck, he's using a Filipino English accent, which is amazing, you know? And I think the theater scene here allows for that kind of play and that kind of diversity to happen. Yeah, 
actually you touched on your accent project, which I think connects really well to this topic. Do you think you can talk a little <laughs> bit more about the accent project or the research project about the Filipino accent that you recently launched yeah. and how that is maybe connected right. to your future creative endeavors? I can talk a lot about it. During the pandemic and during my time here in the UK, I didn't realize how much of a different accent I had. You know, I'm very critical of my own privileged status in Manila, but thinking that I speak and, you know, I can have a good grasp of the English language back in the Philippines, that is the preferred language I, I like to speak and, and to write in, thinking that if I go to the UK, it's an easy transition. But then I realized that even out here in the UK, I sound so different. And then my, my agent uh, suggests to me that, it's a great suggestion, and I love playing with accents. She suggests to me that I learn different UK accents so that I can have more opportunities inside the room, right? And I did that, and I realized the more I'm studying all of these different English accents or, or UK accents, that my own accent becomes a little bit more different and more... I, I, I'm, a, I'm very aware of how different my sound is and how different my accent is. And I started to research. Um, I started to research and discover the origins of my accent and my sound. And I realized that my sound, whatever it is, some people call it American, some people call it Latino, some people call it Irish, but they can never really place exactly what it is because I don't sound American to an American nor do I sound Latin to a, a Latino. So what is my accent? And I realized that it's just really one part of the very colorful gradiated spectrum of the larger Filipino accent. So I go into a deep dive into understanding why. Who, why, where, how did I get this sound? And that unearthed so much research and so much information about status, about history, about geography, about the 187 languages we speak in the archipelago, about really not having a very solid understanding of what the national language is and how it's written in the constitution as well. The diaspora and how people migrate different, of different statuses from the Philippines, how they migrated and generation um, the accent of someone who migrated to the States in the 80s is very different from someone who migrated last year to the United Kingdom. You know, so all of these things influence the sound. And I realized that I wanted to remove the stereotype of this Filipino accent as we only see it as punchlines in what is becoming more mainstream with stand-up comedians like Joe Coy. Uh, there's a whole Crazy Ex-Girlfriend feature on on the Filipino family. You have Nico Santos, who's doing an amazing job in Superstore representing the Filipino and the Filipino migrant. So there's so much more interest in the Filipino character written for film, TV, and stage. And I feel that there is not enough discussion on what the Filipino accent is. Everybody has an idea, a very vague idea of what it is. And when they are meant to mimic it or to try it out, they refer to how their mom sounds or their dad sounds or their tita sounds or their family in the Philippines sounds. But they don't really have an understanding of the complexities and the dimensions of it. And my goal with this research is to break away from that very stereotypical and punchline level understanding 
of the accent. And there is a place for that. I love comedy. And there is a, there's a reason for why there's a stereotype. But then there's also a world of understanding to discover about the other dimensions that affect this Filipino sound. And I think later on, I mean, I'm receiving more casting calls out here for films and TV wherein they're looking for Filipino characters with a Filipino accent. So I'm not even sure if the producers and the casters understand what they're asking for when they say they want the Filipino accent. You know, can I come in there with an Ilocano accent or a Hiligaynon accent or a Sugigo? You know what I mean? I don't think they know. They just have, they, we want the Filipino with a Filipino accent. But what's great about that is there's more stories now and characters being written, right? So my research is kind of just riding on that anticipation that eventually, because of just our history of migration, that there will be more Filipino characters written into mainstream media. And there will be Filipino actors that will need to understand the complexities of this accent so that we're not just going back to the stereotype or this, this or trope. Cartoonish portrayal. I, I, absolutely, of this cartoonish portrayal. And I like it. I mean, the workshop has been received so well and the reactions have been emotional to say the least. Because after I run through a very lengthy lecture on the factors that affect this sound. And I don't go straight into the application. I have to make them sit through this important discussion on the factors that affect it because it's about status. It's about privilege. It's about history. It's about our poverty. It's about colonialism. It's about our history with the Western colonizers. It's all of that rolled into one, into one lengthy discussion. And then I apply it. And I make the participants, which are actors, I make them choose a speech from Shakespeare, a classical speech that any actor would have as an audition piece, but use the Filipino accent in it. And it's emotional because they've never taken the Filipino accent seriously, or they've never legitimized this sound in such a serious and legitimate context. And it's a nice journey because as they start the speech, it's almost like they're embarrassed to use the accent. But then they finish the speech empowered by it. And I love how it's opening up a discussion for Filipino actors who were never in the Philippines, because there's so many of them in the States and here in the UK, and also for Filipino migrant actors who have tried to shy away from their own accent to compete with the Brits and the Americans. Because we, we come out, and it's the same feeling I had when I came out to the UK, I felt automatically inferior or, you know, not worthy or not enough. And embracing your own sound, embracing your own accent does so much to you as an actor and as a storyteller. And hopefully this will open up more opportunities for Filipino characters to be written so that our representation in mainstream films and TV and stages is more rounded. And we're not just reduced to a background nurse, helper, or, you know, a dishwasher. Hopefully, front and center, we have Filipino characters. Yeah. Well, the Filipino nurses in the UK are, like, doing the lion's share uh, of COVID care. And, yeah. yeah. So it would be interesting to see them get the full and uh, fully rounded portrayal if there were to be stories right. written about them. Right. Yeah. 
you touched on this a little bit, you know, you said that, you know, you wish you'd seen it as a career. If you could go back in time, would you do anything differently? You know, but at the same time, you also kind of, the, we, the dots, we said yeah, the dots connect connected. Yeah. I would change the question. I would modify it to, I mean, I have no regrets with my experience. And I think That's my good. unique experience makes me who I am now. And my unique experience has actually formed the product that I have to offer now. I would modify the question and say, if I had a kid, that wanted to be an actor, what I would do differently that was not done with me, and for good reason, I, and I love my parents to bits, and they, I understand where they're coming from, and they're very, very, very proud of me and what I do now. But if I had my own kid and, and my kid decides to one day say, Dad, I want to be an actor, I would fully support him or her and put gravitas into this profession that he or she decides to choose as much as I would if my kid decides to be an engineer or an architect or a scientist, right? Because there is a place for artists. There is an important place in society and in history for artists. So I think that's the only thing I would do differently and maybe expose them to art early on so that they can decide whether they like it or not, you know? For themselves. To be fair to my parents, that's what they did with me. They exposed me, they brought me to the theater when I was very, very young. They made me listen to Lea Salonga day and night, and I loved it. You know, they are massive Rodgers and Hammerstein's fan. Um, and we would watch Sound of Music every Christmas season. Like, it was a big deal for us. But then when it became a serious career option for me, that's when it got a little shifty. For me, if I had a kid and I've exposed him and he decides that he really wants that to be the profession, then I'm going to support my child all the way by picking drama schools and seeing what route of acting and all of the complexities of acting that he wants to take. Whether it be on stage as an actor or behind the scenes as a designer, as, as a wig maker, as a costume designer, as a projection designer, a set designer, as a producer, as a dramaturg, as a writer, as a director. I mean, there's so many aspects to this wonderful industry that we have. And that's why it was quite um, sad to realize that there was not enough support because when you say that the government is not supporting the theater, it's not just the actors that are suffering, it's everyone else. It's the hundreds and thousands of people that are out of work. These are the carpenters, these are the set builders, these are the makeup and costume departments, these are the wardrobe departments. I mean, so many, so many that are out of work. Because it takes an army to build that experience that you enjoy for two hours inside the theater. It really does. And it's that same army that's going to keep art alive and keep society alive. It's the same ar army that provides happiness and joy in times of the pandemic. It's the same army that will bring people together and celebrate something, a shared experience for those two hours inside a theater. Yeah, so I would support it. And I, I would support it seriously and go out of my way to do that. Yeah. You mentioned that we did do like one high school theater production and you were head and shoulders in a different league versus the rest of the performers because <laughs> you were actually acting professionally and all of us were just, you know, we were playing dress up. We were waiting backstage, like waiting for our turn to go on stage. And you were telling me your stories about being in Repertory Philippines. And, yeah. you know, I think... Tita Bibot, like Erzanaida Amador, who's one of the co-founders of Repertory Philippines, yeah. who like fired a, a nine-year-old child on mm. the spot for being like 10 minutes late to a rehearsal because yep. 
she was trying to you know drive home the point that you're working after you're no matter how old you are traffic is not an excuse and that's an excuse that gets used often in the philippines but yeah. you know or filipino time you know there's this trope which was maybe a holdover from the spanish mm. colonial past but basically she's trying to make the point that you want to be an actor um, in the global standard like this is it be professional be on time know your yeah. know your lines come come prepared i remember you told me that and i was taking mental notes like wow <laughs> he was already you know in this world from such a young age so i think it's great that your parents supported you in that sense like let you actually yeah. come out in those productions but what's maybe the best advice i know you've been mentored by so many people in your long yeah. career what's the best advice you ever got the best advice actually that i got was from a director a theater director who, who is a really good friend of mine from the Philippines saying to do, and I always refer to this advice that she has told me. Anytime someone asks me this question, she had advised me to do the things that scare me. And I think subconsciously, it kind of just found its way in my soul because I'm doing a lot of scary stuff <laughs> right now. Um, I'm doing, I just find myself just jumping in into things that are really scary. I mean, this whole career change from a cushy advertising directing job in the Philippines, in Manila, to just completely quitting cold turkey and just moving on to be an actor out here in the UK. Like, if I think about it, it was a really, really scary thing to do. And even right now, this, you know, just trying to survive this pandemic is very scary. Trying to survive as an actor is very scary because there's nothing sure. But that's the best advice, I think, because... It did something to me. It strengthened my resolve. It made me realize what I really wanted to do in times of hardship and in times of lack. That advice kind of keeps me grounded as to why I'm doing it. It keeps me hopeful as well. And it just reminds me of who I am. And I think that's the best advice. I mean, coming into this industry, your Achilles heel for anyone, I think, is not knowing who you are, not knowing your identity, because this industry is going to tear you apart with the re- amount of rejection, with all of the blinding lights of where you, know, where you can go, the opportunity. And if you put your hope into these things that will tear you apart, then you're going to end up not knowing who you are. And I think with any actor, you need to know who you are first before you can completely disappear into the identity of another. Uh-huh. You mentioned, you know, it's been a challenge the past few uh, months because with plans changing so much mm-hmm. and getting canceled and then kind of, you know, shows opening and then closing again. I guess, how has the pandemic affected the way you think about your craft and your creative plans for yourself? Like what's next and what would you like to do under, you know, these circumstances while we're still in this quote unquote, you know, new normal? Yeah, I do realize that I find things to do when there is nothing to do. Like I, I'm the kind of person, like I said, like that director friend of mine who advised me to do things that are scary. I find that I find boldness in trying things that are different and new. I'm not afraid to be a student again, to learn something different. I'm not afraid to make mistakes. And I think during this whole lockdown season, wherein as a creative person, your nature is to constantly create, not having an avenue to express your creativity or your nature is really crippling. 
and there was a season where I got depressed and I, I was spiraling into, you know, oblivion. But then instead of doing that, you make a conscious decision to just start creating, make things happen. And they're not going to be pretty things, they're not going to be great at the start, but then just make things happen. And one way that actually saved me was baking bread. And the whole idea of, of course, everybody will have their own sourdough stories, but the whole idea of, I think the philosophy of bread making is, was so romantic to me about just air and flour and water, how something beautiful can be created by something so simple. And I think that's the reflection of who I am right now in this situation in the world and in, in this time in history, wherein everything is a lack, everything is limited. You can't go out, you can't perform with your friends, you can't, you know, and that's the best thing to happen to any artist because true art, I think, comes from limitation. And I learned that as an artist growing up in the Philippines. And budget is always limited, opportunity is always limited. You basically have, you know, there's not enough support that goes into the art in the Philippines. So I grew up as an artist for the most part of my life in the Philippines with limitation. And I think that's where I thrive. So yeah, I'm just always finding stuff to do and things to learn that are all connected to who I am as a theater maker and who I am as an artist. Yeah. So you've given us a very full and sobering picture about the life of an artist, especially an immigrant artist in the UK, you know, competing on the world stage. You went from leading man roles left and right to actually, you know, auditioning with people who were the leading men also in their countries. So yeah. you know, when, when yeah. that's a situation, it's, uh, I mean, somebody has to play all the different parts, right? So I think your journey has been really inspiring and you were actually showing um, what Filipino talent can do on a global stage uh, and, the grit, and the grit and hard work that goes into it. So I think that's inspiring in itself, you know. Thank and, you. Yeah, and the fact that you were handpicked for Fanny and Stella, it's amazing. In a race-blind casting, pa. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I absolutely love it. And it's funny because I'm Asian and then I play an American. Yeah. <laughs> it was very interesting. I, lo I loved it. I loved it. Yeah, that's when our uh, colonial history also came in handy because that's how we can do the accents. Right? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> So I have a couple of questions before I ask you what's next and how people can get in touch with you to close this yeah. out. But uh, yeah, do you have a dream show or a dream part that you have not done yet that's still on your list? You know what? If you asked me this question like a year ago, at the start of the pandemic, I would have a grocery list. But right now, I think the pandemic has kind of really opened my eyes to one, how much I really love theater per se. And two, that I love theater not because of the specific roles or shows that I want to be in. And there are, I mean, I have them, but then I kind of, I had a vision wall before. I had a vision wall at the start of 2020 for all of these roles that I auditioned for and all of these shows that I want to be part of. And I took it down. And not because I was angry or whatever. I just took it down because I really didn't have any specific role now that I wanted to do. I just want to be able to be cast in anything right now. You know, give me text to learn as an actor. Let me disappear into something. Let, give me a new song to learn as an actor. And that's what excites me. The newer shows out here, the newer musical theater shows out here are absolutely exciting. I did a workshop with a Filipino immigrant musical theater writer in New York, Paulo Tirol, amazing talent. And yeah. he's, writing, he's writing new shows. He's, a, he's there. He's, he's on Broadway. And I think it's going to be very soon where, before we see it's not, not going to be too long before we see a show of his off-Broadway or on-Broadway. 
but then he's writing Filipino stories and I was privileged enough to do one of his workshops and it's great. Like, it's so nice to learn a new character and to sing a new song. That's what excites me. Of course, there, there will always be the Les Mis and the Hamiltons that I can, you know, fantasize about or daydream about. But then ultimately, I just want to, like Fanny and Stella opened it up for me. Like I had no idea what Fanny and Stella was, but I loved every single moment of it. And I think that's what the nice thing about being an actor is like you're always just excited about things that you're not sure of and, you know, stuff that you want to do that's new. Um, is there, or I guess another way of asking it is, is there a role you've played or maybe a fictional character from a, could be a film, you know, book, TV, yeah. or a theater role? Is there a fictional character that you most identify with, even if you don't want to play them necessarily? Um, I can't think of anyone right now, although I do would love to be in a Shakespeare production here, in, in any, in any Shakespeare text. I, I'm not picky. I would like to be in The Tempest because I just love that show so much. But then in any Shakespeare play out here in the UK, I think that's one of my biggest dreams. I have dream theaters to be in. I would like to perform at the National Theater. I would like to perform at the RSC. It's a gorgeous theater in Stratford-upon-Avon. I would like to finally make a West End debut for whatever show. That would be fun. Um, but generally, no real specific characters that I want to play. I used to want to play Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. <laughs> I, used, I used to want to play Aladdin as well. I mean, but then I think those amazing shows will always be there. Um, what excites me more are the newer ones. Yeah, you can originate roles rather yeah, than absolutely. doing something that's been done before. Um, what would you want written on your tombstone? Like, or how would you want people to remember you? Wow, that's a good question. You'd think that after a whole global pandemic someone would be thinking about what they'd write on their tombstone but i actually haven't it's a I bit would more of it. <laughs> but, but our, our, our teacher used to make us do this in like fourth grade she wanted us to think about what we wanted our legacy to be so we could start working on it your teacher made you think about what you'd write on your tombstone at grade four yeah she made us that's I more think, of it she made us draw it no it, it's oh more about God. this awareness of mortality no i know so i know i know yeah, right? I, I know what she but it, yeah it, we had no idea as kids how like morbid it was at the time i think i would like to be remembered as a risk taker and a fire starter yeah i like that and what are you reading right now? Do you have any recommended reading or viewing? Um, I'm reading right now. I, oh, yeah, I do have a recommended viewing, which I absolutely love. I'm reading right now Sanford Meissner's On Acting because I am about to embark on a very exciting 14-month journey with the London Meissner Company, and I'm very excited about that. Yeah, I signed up to be a student, so I'll be learning Meissner for the most part of this year wow. and next. And that's my recommended reading. My recommended watching is I just finished four seasons of an amazing French TV series called Call My Agent. Dix Porcent, I think, is the French title. But then it's about agents. It's about talent agents and the very exciting life they live managing all of these amazing French actors of cinema. And it's really, really good. It's on Netflix. And... It's so well done, well acted, well performed, well directed, and all of these amazing actors. Each episode is revolving around a very famous French 
uh, cinema actor, which is so cool, which is really, really good. I can't recommend that enough because it's really a good insight as well to our industry. Nice. For those who are maybe not so familiar with acting, do you think you could give like a super brief overview of what's the difference between Meisner's technique versus like, I don't know, Stanislavski, Stella Adler, Lee Strasberg? Uh, it's so hard to give an overview. Well, okay, I, we'll just read the book. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can, <laughs> what I can give you is my acting tutor and my acting coach which I think is Manila's best kept secret is Anna Valdez Lim. She just also so happens to be my aunt, which is great. But Anna Valdez Lim is the very, I think the very first Filipina who was a product of Juilliard in New York. And she's written two books. One is called Evolutionary Theater and the other is called Actors Workshop, specifically with her experience working with actors in the Philippines. I think she's Manila's best kept secret. I go to her every time I need to uh, work on an audition out here. And um, she does not break down to me who the thought leader was behind a certain technique, but she just kind of gives me a hybrid of all of these different techniques by Strasberg, by Stanislavski, by Meissner, and just to work specifically on the text that I'm preparing for. So if anyone wants to seriously consider acting, I would say that they should look Annabelle Deslim up and book a session with her. People who want to get into the field should take notes. Um, we actually crowdsourced some questions also. Did you? One thing, <laughs> yeah, one thing that came up, we have a listener named Tinka. And when I said, hey, do you, what would you guys ask, you know, a professional actor, yeah. a theater actor? Yeah. She asked whether doing kissing mm-hmm. scenes for your plays is, you know, weird or how do you navigate kind of the boundaries of intimacy? I know that maybe use of intimacy coordinators right. is now getting more right. mainstream. But the reason she gave for bringing this up is she says in film, she would imagine that, you know, you do a few takes, you mm. know, you're done. And then whatever intimate scenes you have are now on screen. Whereas for a play, you're it every doing day. the intimate scene again and, yeah, every yeah. Day, again and again for like yeah. months on end. I've never had an intimate scene or a kissing scene on screen, but for stage, I I have, and you've seen me do that. I've seen in Spring Awakening was, I think, the most intimate that I've been on. And that was also the most challenging for me because I essentially needed to go partially nude as well as my partner then. And last five years, it was just a kissing scene. I think the most important thing is trust. You need to trust your co-actor and you need to trust the director and the company that they are all taking care of you in something very intimate. There is an expectation, yes, that actors should be able to do this kind of scene and vulnerability and, you know, commit to this kind of intimacy. But it's also really, really, really important that the actor trusts everybody that is involved in making that moment happen so that it becomes something that you can repeat safely and respectfully that everybody's boundaries are considered and not just your own. Another thing that you need to sort out is your own relationships. Like if you're married, if you have a partner to explain that this is a job and, and, and the person that is doing the scene on stage is not necessarily the person that goes home and spends most of the li- your life with, you know. So yeah, I think it's just about trust and understanding that this is part of it. But it's also important, like I, I, it goes back to your 
understanding of your own identity. What are your boundaries? You know, and you have to be very sure of what your boundaries are and who you are, even before, before approaching a script, like even before coming into audition for something, know what it's about, because it's also your due diligence as an actor to provide everybody else respect. So if you audition for something and you nail it, and then you book the job, and then you don't realize exactly how much intimate scenes there are in the show or in, in the film, that that's on you. You disrespected everybody by making yourself available to be hired for the job, but then realizing later on that you have a personal conviction problem with it. So I think research and just knowing who you are and what your own boundaries are. And then once you are comfortable with that, once you're about to do the, in, the, the actual scene, make sure that everybody is aware of what your safety lines are and make sure that you trust the people that you're working with. That touches on all the aspects to consider for that question. <laughs> yeah. Okian, you were a director yeah. for a very long yeah. time. Who would you want to direct the movie about your life? Oh, that'd be great. There is an amazing director out here of Filipino heritage. His name is Paris Zarcilia. He has some short films out and he's really, really make, making waves here in the British film scene. Um, I would like a Filipino director to direct my life. And I think his aesthetic, I, I, I'm absolutely in love with his stuff. His aesthetic, his sensitivity, the silences to his films. And I think just the fact that he under, understands the heritage and the migrant story will bode well for me if he were to direct a film about my life. But my life's boring. Nobody should make a film about my life. <laughs> You say that now, but you know we were just talking about Jeopardy questions earlier. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah. Oh, it'll be like the, the baker, the actor, the director. Absolutely. Can you imagine? Bad. Joaquin <laughs> <laughs> Valdez story. <laughs> yeah. How can people get involved in the projects you're doing? Or, you know, are you looking for any collaborators for the actors? Right, well, right now, I, put a, I, I launched two really successful pilot runs of the work of the workshop for the actor but i'm in the process now of doing interviews you will actually help me you need to connect me to certain academics that i, I would love to interview historians and just to see you know to create a shape of it i'm in the process of actually trying to work on a grant for it as well and see how the research that i discovered will be applied as either a, a creative application, whether it be a devised work that will be performed by actors on stage or a book that, you know, can be published. So, you know, I, I don't know. It's all very new. Uh, people can get in touch with me. I'm on social media. So I think you can put it on your podcast. I'm J Pedro Valdez UK on Twitter and on Instagram uh, mainly. And um, yeah, people can get in touch with me through there. I mean, I'm really excited to see what you'll come up with next. And you were talking about the book. Um, perhaps you could also do a documentary and bring in you, your yeah. film. You know what? You know, one of my participants actually sent me an email asking if, if I was interested in pursuing it as a documentary. I think that's actually something I can do. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's super interesting. Like the story of also the diaspora on stage, like representation mm. in art, but also the people creating the art there. I'm sure there are many many other creatives that we've not even heard right. of. Right, absolutely. 
So Wikian, thank you so much for spending time with us. I know that you know you're busy preparing for the different projects and also working on your you know trying to get the grant and whatnot. And also, I know I think you've bread waiting in the oven. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, this was such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really, yeah. I really appreciate anyone who's interested in hearing my story. So thank you, thank you for this. Yeah, and I think this will only inspire the others that are, at least if they want to go into it, they go into it with right. eyes wide open. And you've given us a very realistic, but also inspiring view of what it takes to succeed and survive in the arts, which surviving is a, an accomplishment in itself, because it's an industry where the odds are so stacked against the people in yep. this industry. But yeah, you are taking control. Maybe this is part of what you were like as a director, but you know, you're shaping your own narrative where you run into walls. So I'm very, very proud to see you doing that and very excited. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. I, that, so, I really, really appreciate that. Thank you. And, you know, we were talking about this very briefly um, before we started the episode, but, you know, even the throwaway line you said about, you know, the high school drama production you did actually, you said it inspired one of our common friends to start this theater fan page um, that sparked her love for theater. So you never know the impact that you have on other people. And I'm sure there are so many stories that will come out over the next few years about how your performances or your stories kind of changed people's lives or inspired them to do something related to the arts. So I look forward oh. to that. Seeing you see the, the, the fruits of the trees that you didn't yes, know you were planting. I like that. Definitely. That's a great image. I'm going to use that. <laughs> Have a good rest of your day. And uh, yeah, I wish you all the best. Very excited to see you come out on the world. Rami Salamat. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> and have a good day. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening, guys. Don't forget to like, rate, subscribe, and share with a friend so that others can find the pod as well. Do check out at occupationalhazards.podcast on Instagram, where we have more updates from our guests and some listener feedback. Slide into our DMs. We'd love to hear from you. Catch you next episode.